Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Okay, everyone. Today I have with me Dr. Rhonda Freeman. She is a clinical neuropsychologist and she works with patients that are diagnosed with neurological conditions. And she's also a writer for Psychology Today, Huffington Post, and Aftermath Surviving Psychopathy, which she helped me learn how to pronounce correctly. In fact, I found her and her work because of an article that she had written um, called Six Opticals to a Relationship with a Psychopath that my own therapist had shared with me in order to help me understand the issues that are related to to those types of relationships and some of the troubles that I was having in my own recovery from one. She's also the founder of NeuroInstincts, which is a neuroscience approach to healing from narcissistic and relational abuse. And so I'm really excited to be speaking with her today. So welcome to the show, Rhonda. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, in the interest of everybody that's listening here, here's the reality of podcasting. Um, and that is sometimes mistakes happen. And so this is not the first time Rhonda's technically spoken with me about this topic. The first time was actually a lovely conversation about two weeks ago. And in the melee, I had forgotten to hit the record button. And so when we got done with the entire interview, I closed the meeting out. And then I had this terrible feeling as I didn't see anything being converted and realized that none of it had been captured. And so I had to put my tail between my legs and I had to send her an email right away and say, um, would you be willing to do that all over again? And she graciously said yes. And so I mean, gratitude is like double today for having you back on for doing that. It happens. It's okay. Oh, well, um, so I want to start off with the conversation of how you ended up working in the field of narcissistic abuse survivors. You know, where did, where did you get into this from and why? Yeah, yeah. It didn't start with becoming a neuropsychologist. I became a neuropsychologist because I wanted to work with dementia, um, head trauma, and stroke. And in that time period in my career, I fell in love (laughs) with a psychopath. And that changed everything for me. I started to see how neuropsychology could be applied to the healing process with this kind of relationship because I went through much like many other people, the incredible amount of pain, the craving, the confusion, that all the trauma responses. And so I tried to use what I know as a neuropsychologist to kind of help me through that. It took me a while, believe it or not, to just do it right away. (laughs) I didn't do it right away. It took about almost a year before I decided to apply neuroscience to it. But when I did, it was really, really helpful. Um, Because I know sometimes the healing does take time from that. And the reason why I'm talking to you is because 
typically people take the, you know, the, the therapy approach to this. And mm-hmm. I've always been intrigued by the brain, even though I'm not a neuropsychologist and a neuroscientist like you, but um, the approach that you're, you know, the direction that you're going with this makes complete sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, like I said, this is an exciting conversation that we're going to have. Now, I, I want to start off because you've written several articles and, um, and you've always used the word, or I don't want to say always, but you've generally used the word psychopath as opposed to the narcissist, which is a, you know, a much more common kind of identifying tag that people put on complicated relationships. Can you help define what a psychopath is? Because I know everybody thinks of movies and they think of axe murders and, um, but what is a psychopath? The psychopath is just simply a personality disorder that is along the pathological narcissism spectrum. So it's, we start off that, that spectrum with narcissistic personality disorder, and then it just kind of keeps going as far as magnitude and overlay of symptoms. You just add more symptoms to it when you get down that path. So eventually in somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, there are some with that, and then there are some that have a little bit more. So they have some narcissism blended with some antisocial. We often refer to those as the malignant narcissist. Some people use the word the sociopath. I, I don't use that word because we don't really use it in the scientific literature, but I do understand when people use that word. Um, and then we have the person who's full-blown antisocial personality disorder. And further down that, that path is this isolated group of individuals called psychopaths. And they tend to have extremely low empathy. Many of them enjoy watching the discomfort of of others. They uh, have minimal ability for care, compassion, low morals. Uh, They are fragile, but they're not fragile in the way that the narcissist is. Like, for example, the narcissist really needs the feedback of other people um, in such a way that it holds up their their frame of, of who they think they are in their mind. Whereas the psychopaths really not so much interested in what you think of them. They if you think they're a terrible person, so what? If you think they're a great person, so what? Like they really don't care. It's more about what they can get from you and what value you hold to them completely. Whereas with the nurses, there's a little bit more of a mixture. They have some they can see some value in you for their use of you, but they also need you to reflect how amazing they are. You know, I'm the best at this. I'm great and all that. So the psychopath is further down. We have a lot of research on the psychopath with respect to their brain functions. And so we know they have a great deal of neuropathology. Um, And so they're a bit different from the narcissist. And some of them are, are quite dangerous. So when we're talking about um, relational, uh, you know, abuse and narcissistic abuse, do you um, do you see a lot more narcissism and some blend of them? I mean, how often is somebody actually going to run into? I guess my question is: is how often does somebody run into like a genuine psychopath? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we'd all like to call all of our exes psychopaths, as they would yeah. like to do the same with us. But really, how prevalent is that condition? Yeah. It's not as prevalent as, as someone with narcissistic personality disorder. We don't have like, exact numbers. It's, it's a little bit hard to get those numbers um, just because these individuals don't really present to the um, to doctors like me. And, and so we're estimating that the prevalence is about 1% to 2%. But it could be much more, you know, and it can be anywhere. They can be your neighbor. They can be your, your boss. They can be the nice old lady that you think is a nice old lady down the street, you know, they can be anybody. 
Um, and if you know the the sort of the, the symptoms of the condition, you can recognize it a lot more in people. Um, and I actually think that unfortunately, some people will erroneously think that people who are on the autism spectrum um, have autism, when in fact we are dealing with some of them are, are actual psychopaths and vice versa. So that's why there's a little bit, you know, with a psychologist, we tell people be very careful about trying to throw a diagnosis on somebody, you know, because there these conditions can appear similar, but be completely different, you know, so antisocial and a autism person are definitely not the same. Mm-hmm. They both have empathy related difficulties. Right. Interesting. Now you use the word antisocial and I, and I think about the, um, when we're talking about the charisma and the charm, you know, of somebody that may be on the narcissism spectrum, you don't actually mean that they don't like to be around people, right? Like, I, I mean, antisocial is a word we use to say, I don't want to see another human being. And it, you know, they, what they mean is maybe feeling a little bit more introverted. Oh no, no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the actual diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder is somebody who, uh, um, is socially inappropriately. They don't value social relationships. They tend to use people. They tend to exploit people, con people. So their, their behavior is not social. Their behavior is antisocial. And, and they can be very, very manipulative, very charming. Um, they, they size people up quite a lot, you know, and they can see what they want. They play that person to get that. Um, some of them have a little bit of emotion to them, but then as you go further down that spectrum, as I said, then that emotion gets kind of pulled out and you're dealing with a psychopath at that point. Right, right. Now, um, I know people have a hard time seeing that when somebody on the outside is fun and charming and seems to be successful, is also capable of having this entirely different personality, especially with a romantic partner, um, which makes it, as you know, very hard for a partner to, to leave or believe their own reality because they're, you know, they're caught up in this. But I see somebody that doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with them. So let's start this brain decision. Discussion. What's going on here in the brains, and and how can a psychopath appear to actually be two different people, you know, outside and, and internal to a relationship? That is such a great question because that is one of the um, hindrances for people trying to move forward. Is that you look at this this man or this woman, and you think, my goodness, they seem to have it so together. They're talented in various ways. It could be very artistic. They can be very articulate. They can have a power position all kinds of talents and and accomplishments and even good things that they're doing in the world. However, they can be some of the coldest, cruelest people you ever meet. And so you wonder how in the world is possible in in one person. And that's because we have different pathways that serve different functions. And so for the cognitive functions, they're not exactly the same as the ones that serve our emotional uh, well-being, our emotional status. And so the research shows that, for example, people with psychopathy, they have a great deal of hyper um, arousal, hyper responsiveness is what we call our reward system. That's our pleasure pain system of the brain. It gets us excited about new partners. It makes us feel attracted. It makes us feel lust. All those good things that you need in the very beginning of the relationship that just gets you going about somebody. Um, And they, they have very low... Um, amygdala responsiveness. So they're not so emotionally in tune with other people, maybe not even so much with themselves. Um, And then they also have pathways that are not quite connected well to different sections of the brain. Like for example, their prefrontal cortex that controls things is not well connected to the deeper sections of the brain. And so they'll be be apt to be immoral, apt to be um, high risk takers, 
Whereas the rest of us have that natural control in our brain that says instantly, no, or be worried about this. This is a bad situation. Theirs won't do that. They'll think, well, that's exciting. I'm going to go for it. You know, quite the opposite. Oh, interesting. Now, is the um, is this something that is a genetic, uh, you know, something that a person is born with, is or is it something that's actually learned through experiences, or is it sometimes both? Right. We see. We think that it's a combination of both. I, I work with a group of researchers via aftermath surviving psychopathy, and the doctors over there think that there's a combination of two things going on for the let's say pure psychopath which is we call that primary psychopathy, individuals who are very emotionally flat, they're cold, they seem calm under all circumstances, they don't get nervous. Um, we see patterns of that in their childhood. And we don't call children psychopaths, but rather is a description called callous unemotional. So if you look up the terms called callous unemotional for children, and you'll see they're describing the psychopath, unfortunately, as a child. But we don't label them that because... You know, we try to get them help as much as possible to keep their symptoms at bay before they become an adult and get full-blown. Um, so, yes, it looks like it's quite genetic. So if you have a child with somebody with this condition, the incidence is higher for, than someone who has a child with someone without psychopathy to have a child with those some of those traits or completely with the traits. So this, it's a combination of both nature-nurture, but mostly when it comes to psychopathy, nature. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, I know that um, for me, it was really hard for me to um, to change, at, you know, coming out of a relationship. And I'm not, I, just for anybody that's listening here, I'm not labeling like my ex was a psychopath. So, I, you know, I don't want that to be out there because I'm not qualified to do that. Um, what I want to talk, you know, about this is about that that's, that is, that is a, some types of a, a relationships that people get into and the abuse that is in relationships, whether they're somebody somewhere on the narcissistic spectrum up all the way up to um, being a psychopath is, is discreet in the sense that it, it goes on behind the scenes and not everybody sees it. I mean, I can imagine, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what your relationship was, but you know, how many people knew you were dealing with what you were dealing with inside your relationship? They thought we were perfect. They thought, well, you're so lucky to have him and he's so lucky to have you and you guys look so great together. Not not look, look, but I mean, you know, as far as our our, our external characteristics, they, we both look like, you know, career people and smart and so on. And they didn't know what I was going, going through behind closed doors at all. Right, know? right. Yeah, I remember um, we were, my, you know, my relationship were the, a, a bulk of this actually happened for me, you know, people would say, you know, gosh, we, we thought you were like the power couple, you know, because of the yeah. same thing, like, you know, mm -hmm. just being really, um, uh, really compatible in a lot of ways or appearing to be compatible. Um, but I will tell you um, that my brain after a while was telling me that um, I needed to get out over and over and over again. And I couldn't. And even after I finally did get out because of circumstances um, with my kids and me needing to make a choice for them, you know, that was basically, I would, I'll, I'll admit it. It was my crutch. If my kids didn't need me to be able to take them in and for us to find a home, you know, and put a home together, I, there, there's a good chance I'd still be in the relationship, still struggling with it and still making excuses for it. But I felt this strange bond even after leaving it of, of, and knowing it felt weird, it felt terrible in my body. And I just struggled on and on about this. And I, I, you know, 
part of it I know is in society, we do see women in abusive situations, like the obvious abusive situations. They've got yeah. black eyes and broken arms and everything. And, you know, I don't mean we as in you and I, but we as a culture, we've tended to victim shame and call them stupid for staying in it, right? Yeah. And because people dismiss women who are being abused, sometimes as deserving it, which is terrible, uh, because they clearly have, you know, no sense to leave the situation. So therefore, screw them. They, you know, they get what they get. Or what happened with me, which was when I would, when I would share about what was going on, I'd be asked directly, are you an idiot? <laughs> well, you know, and someone once said to me, I thought you were smarter than that. I had no idea you were so stupid. And so when it turns out you're actually successful, you know, putting air quotes for people that, you know, are listening to this or intelligent, I'm putting more air quotes around yeah. that. And yeah. you're in an emotionally abusive relationship or a manipulative situation. You actually find yourself becoming too afraid to share your experiences because Absolutely. when you do, somebody can't possibly believe that that's going on and you're a manipulator gets a free pass. Because the math doesn't add up, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, as a woman who am air quoting again, should have known better, <laughs> given the fact that you're a neuropsychologist, yeah. did, you, did you find yourself struggling with the shame uh, of being in this? Yeah, the shame was tremendous. Oh, my gosh, I felt terrible. And I even admitted to him, I was like, you know what? Um, I had a feeling when I met you that this is what you were. And now I know this is what you were and what you are, rather. And I remember he laughed as we were driving. He laughed so hard because he was like, man, I actually fooled a doctor. He kept saying that. And I remember almost crying because I felt one, like, wow, like this was just a game. Like, what the heck? You know, so no, I I couldn't tell anybody during the time because then I thought, my gosh, how did I let this happen? So I really felt like I let this happen. I know better. You know, and so intellectually, it, it's intelligence and, and knowledge actually may not 100% save you once you're in and bonded. Now, now will it save me? Yes, because I don't let it get so far. <laughs> you know, I, I, I really do listen to what my body is telling me, my instincts, and I walk away from anybody who gives me any of those feelings. I don't care what the reason, just if I get that feeling, I'm done. Um, but at that time, I was a lot more open, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm much protective now. Yeah, right. And, you know, because we have had a dress rehearsal at this interview, (laughs) um, I do remember something that struck me, which was um, because I resonated with it and connected with that feeling myself, which was taking a long time to use the A word, you know, that it was abuse, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it, it, it made me, it was a long time for me to say that what I had been going through was actually abusive. And it was really, it was weird. I mean, to, to say that yeah, out loud. And I think you said that you felt the same way. Absolutely. The same way I could actually would interesting. You say the A word, cause that is what I would say to myself, the A word. I wasn't ready. I just, for some reason I wasn't, it was almost like what the victim shamers do to the victim. I was almost too embarrassed to admit that to myself. because I thought, I know I, why did I let that happen? Why did I let this person do all the terrible things they did? And, and I felt, and I also felt angry. I wanted to retaliate, to be honest. Once it was all over, I thought this person deserves X, Y, Z, you know, but I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, <laughs> it's over. But yeah, I couldn't use the A word for so long, for so long. Yeah. So that, that leads us into this, um, you know, because I think that, and this is why I think that this is really important is that, there is a change in the brain 
when we're in these toxic and stressful situations. And that I, I think this is this emerging discussion that I like having over and over again on my shows with people is that, you know, not only are we wired to connect, it doesn't just happen in childhood, but that it is, you know, it is very possible as adults that we will continue to feel trauma, experience trauma. And if we have some history of trauma, it, it will mess with our neuro pathways in a very different way. And I'm not trying to act like I'm the neuropsychologist. I have you on, Rhonda, to talk about it. But again, it's the messaging that I want. And so let's talk about, you know, what these situations do to actually change the brain, because what you're, you know, what you're doing, and we'll get to that is you're helping people change that wiring in the brain. But first, let's understand how, how does this start affecting our brain and making it something that becomes hardwired in us for a period of time? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really complex question because it's there is so much going on, you know, with with the brain and, and these relationships. And when we interact with anyone, the brain changes a little bit in, in respect to those experiences. You know, I always felt that the people leave us in three ways: They'll either leave us feeling improved, leave us the same, or they leave us damaged in some way. So they, they hurt us. And so I have people I interact with that just them walking in the room and I just feel warm. Like that, their energy feels good. They, I can feel their kindness. I can feel their genuineness and I can relax with them. You know, for example, I feel very relaxed talking to you. I can feel your goodness. Um, however, there's some people who will walk in this room and I would feel instantly guarded, tense. There's something, there's something not right about that person. And then if they interact with me and demonstrate their pathology, likely they will have insulted me or said something rude or arrogant or, you know, whatever. And that leaves me feeling less than, you know. Um, and then, of course, there's some, some people who just, you know, whatever, no reaction really much to them. These individuals in the relationships, because of their psychopathology, they tend to leave people feeling damaged in some way. Because they interact via abuse. They interact via little tiny rejections almost all the time when they interact with you. You can tell them about your great day. And just the fact that they'll minimize that is a little bit of a rejection. It makes you feel like, well, mm, that wasn't so great. Um, and they do this again and again. And I'm talking about the little things. And so they can do it in a, on a grander scale. And it's how they value the relationship, for example. You find out they have somebody else. Or you find out that... They're not really that into you. They will betray you on huge and small levels. It won't matter. They gaslight. They do all this pathological behavior, and all those things impact the brain negatively. So you have various systems of the brain that are created to respond in certain ways, getting activated much more than what they should be because these are our safety systems, our survival system, our stress system, our pain system. They're not really meant to go off every day. You know, they're just kind of meant there as protectors and, you know, you do what you have to do to get safe and then, okay. But they're going off for these survivors, us, all the time when we interact with these people. Once the honeymoon period is over, then we're in this other range of, of just terrible interactions. For some of us, it's going to be traumatic. And, and you mentioned the reasons why. Some of us come with some things to the relationship, like a childhood of abuse or attachment styles that are on the insecure range. And so we will be more prone to have a much more intense reaction to their behavior because we've been hurt before. Mm. I, um, I remember in my, in my situation too, that um, I had to change the, the text tone on my phone 
for him. He had his own special one, you know, couples do that, right? You know, our ringtones are separate and our text tones are separate. And I had to change it because I was, every time it would go off, like if I was at work or something like that, because of him texting me just garbage, you know, or, or, you know, complaining about something or accusing me of something or what, you know, demanding or whatever, that every time I heard it, I just instantly, my heart just jumped, you know, and I would start to shake. And I, you know, and this was, this was probably about a year before I left, but I was starting, that's when I started to go, this is not good for you. But I had to change the tone because I was having like a PTSD reaction to yeah. it, like a physical response. And I'm like, I can't do this during the day because then I'd read it. And sometimes it wasn't terrible, but just the sound of it, it was like Pavlov's dogs, right? As exactly. soon as I heard the bell, yeah. my, my body jumped from it. And because you're right, like, I guess thinking about this, it is daily. There's a little attack to the system every single day that your body is on guard and you're, and you're in danger mode, you know, in these relationships. And our brain, um, it's, this is the weirdest thing about our brain, but it actually has a limit. It actually has a stress limit. And once it hits that limit, whatever it is for you, I hit my limit when I was with him. Some people, they can go through a few of these relationships and it haven't hit their limit, depending on how sick that person is. But when we hit that limit, we become extremely hypersensitive. Then all kinds of things will trigger us and bother us that may not even be directly related to the relationship. But once you hit that limit, yeah, the stress system will go off over the tiniest little things. So you have to calm it back down and pull it back together. And once it gets pulled back together, then it can kind of withstand more. But if it stays raw and open like that, and it keeps taking dings, that person's going to feel so out of control. And I feel actually like the crazy person that their, their mate is probably describing them as, you know, which is totally done by the person who abused them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you do end up, and I, and I did. And I, what I found myself is when I go back in history, I was originally triggered not by my partner, but by a business partner who was, had me on guard every day. So I, you know, when I talk about my story on how I ended up, like how I went downhill for about seven to eight years and, you know, and coming back out of it, it first started with the this abusive relationship that was daily. You know, it was a business partner that I had joined up with who constantly was up my crap all the time. And it was at that point I'd been so degraded that my my marriage fell apart. Um, left you know left my family and um, my husband took the kids and then I met my cur- that that boyfriend you know that turned out to be the you know kind of the pinnacle there but I was in the right like I was primed emotionally to meet oh, yeah. him and mm-hmm. then stick with that for so you know like almost seven years you know of of that and so you know I I don't want to you know I I know you're not but for anybody that's listening I really don't want to minimize you know the fact that. Um, uh, you know, the physical responses, I, I never listened to my body because I never knew there was any kind of connection between the two oh. of them. And that that constant drowning your body in all those hormones that are released like cortisol, right? Like that's one of those stress hormones that, mm-hmm. I mean, I could feel it in my heart, you know, and even having these conversations like with you about this stuff, like, you know, I always try to describe like how I feel. Sometimes talking about this topic still makes my heart just kind of mm-hmm. tighten my chest, tighten up because that's how, you know, how ingrained it is in there. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there'll be times I actually have to take a break, big breaks from neural instincts for that very reason. Cause I know that I have to make sure I'm self-caring, you know? And so if I am trying to write articles for people who are just out of these relationships, they do make me kind of go back to that spot where I was and I have to pull away and think, okay, I got to take about a month or two off of this, you know, to, 
regenerate. And then when I, I jump back in, you know, full force, but yeah, I have to take those little breaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's ingrained in there. Yeah. And so I have a question about the, the phrase that I've heard, which is trauma bonding. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, is that what we're talking about here? Or is that something that's different? Um, and is there a neurological basis to that? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much what we're talking about. Um, neurological basis. Yeah. I mean, there's neurological basis in absolutely every behavior that we demonstrate everything, you know, so if you do something, there's a neurological, um, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so trauma bonding psychologically, it came from the, the, the field of psychology. I think Dutton was the main, the first person in like 81 or 80 who came up with this. And he was describing the abusive relationship. He noticed that people who were abused tended to have this strange, he, he noticed bond to the abuser. And he has tons of research, by the way, on abuse. So his, his stuff is amazing. But uh, he talked about how he noticed power differentials in the relationship and noticed how these abusive partners were sometimes nice, but sometimes mean. And, and they seemed to just rope these partners in a connection that was almost like Stockholm syndrome type of connection. And even though the person would treat the victim badly, the victim stayed, didn't leave. <laughs> And so I looked at that from a neurological standpoint. I tried to figure out what is going on in the brain behind that because I hunted for articles and I couldn't find anybody that would neurologically describe the trauma bond. So I came up with my own theories. I don't know if I'm right because, you know, I don't have a research institution. (laughs) And I can't put a bunch of survivors, you know, in our fMRI or something like that. But I'm just going by theory. This is what I think. I think that just a few of the chemistry, now I don't think I have the whole thing, but I think I have a little piece of it. And we have chemistry that makes us um, connected to people and get uh, interested in people. So like dopamine and oxytocin. We must have those two sets of chemistry together in order to feel any kind of attraction. Like, for example, we can have uh, oxytocin with respect to our children, but we don't have the type of dopamine and serotonin mixture that would give us the um, romantic connection, you know what I mean? So when you talk about romance, we need this certain set of chemistry to be present. And we have that, of course, with a relationship. And when somebody is doing that back and forth and rejection within approval, within this, this, this crazy up and down, as I told you, the brain reacts to everything. So they're kind of playing with our cocktail of, of bonding and reward system chemistry. And actually the bonding system is a part of the reward system uh, system. And when they play with those two things, they make us more and more and more connected, even though logically we can say, and I could logically say, I don't like this guy. This guy doesn't hold my values. I would never say the things this person says to anyone ever because it's rude or it's inappropriate or it's harsh. Um, And so from a cognitive standpoint, I didn't like the guy. Yet and still, I'm checking my phone. Did he call today? Why didn't he text? Did he text? Seconds. It just, I was like wondering what's going on. Is he home? Is he not? You know, it was, I was acting like a crazy person, I thought. Um, and I think because I was trauma bonded and oxytocin is this really weird chemical that we have. It makes us feel connected to people, but it also can make us feel jealous. Um, and it also lets you know there's something not right in your social connection with other people. So if oxytocin from that has, I'm sorry, oxytocin that is connecting with certain receptors in our brain they can actually make you feel terrible and you think well wait oxytocin usually makes us feel amazing because it does it makes you feel a hug from your your, your kid or, or your mm-hmm. dog or your cat or whatever you just cuddle them you feel so good but there's another kind of uh receptor that takes oxytocin that makes you feel absolutely horrible and i think that they activate both sets of receptors they, they activate the receptor that makes us feel amazing but they also activate the receptor that makes us feel terrible and so you're caught up in this back and forth loop 
That is my theory. I have no idea if it's true or not because it's hard to measure oxytocin in the blood system. And we'd have to actually catch a survivor of, are you in a rejection stage right now? Are you, you know, <laughs> so it'd be a little bit tough to, to research that. But that's my theory. I think the trauma bond has that as its basis of neuroscience if that makes any sense yeah no it does and it um you know every theory is good right i mean i mean right now with the with what we're discovering you know in the brain and stuff like that i know in the field that you're working and there's always something new that we're learning in there but there is that because what you were describing was is it it's that weird you know back and forth of why 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 when i know you're awful right you know yeah, yeah, and, you know, and so I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I wonder if Rhonda and I dated the same guy. You okay to me? Right? Because it's like, yeah, like, yeah, why did you say that? Why am I okay? Well, I, I'm not okay with it, but why am I not doing something right. about it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it doesn't match my personality. I'm not like a quiet, oh, okay. No, I'm like, <laughs> I could be really tough. Right. <laughs> For right. some reason, I didn't demonstrate that. Yeah. And, you know, and again, I think that that's a, you know, that's very pertinent to, um, to people and their experiences, because again, we make a lot of assumptions about the types of people that become abuse victims, right? That they have to, that there are certain personality that they're posturing, uh, you know, is weak and Mm -hmm. that they look like victims. And so Mm -hmm. when, so when you can sit here and have two women are like, how the hell did this happen to us? Like, we don't look like the types that would do it. Then it's like, well, then what, where's the root of that? And it, you know, and that's where it comes into like, there, there are these tricks the brain does. And, I know when we talk about, you know, again, people like the, the abusers and the manipulators, you know, it feels, I, I can't get it. Like, are they consciously knowing that if they put me down and then bring me up that they've got me in a teeter totter or is it a, is it a weird, because my brain doesn't work that way. Right. So I don't know if, if I, cause I can't ask you and I can't ask or, or, you know, abusers, like, did you know you were doing that? To you know what you're doing. Right. Yeah. right? So- I mean, that because I had an experience um, of somebody who was visiting my house. He's he's a friend of a friend who came to visit my nephew, young guy. And I was in the kitchen cooking, and the boys were having a conversation. They were trying to keep it appropriate because our family room and our, our kitchen kind of goes, it's open, you know, plants, so it kind of goes one into the other, so they knew I could hear them. So this guy was talking about this girl, and this girl supposedly was just really gorgeous. She was really, like, a confident girl. Not arrogant, it sounds like, but just a really nice beautiful girl and he was kind of shocked that he was getting to date this girl so he was telling the guys you know like i have to put this girl he didn't say that in check and i was like yo what you guys what'd you do to do that he goes well what i did was i just like i i ghost her and i come back i ghost her and i come back i keep doing that and i was like oh my god he is like explicitly describing um, how how rejection works in the brain and how, because one of the ways you can unfortunately really get a person connected to you is reject them. Mm-hmm. Reject them and then come back and play innocent. Mm-hmm. And then reject them again and come back. Because then they'll start to think, well, what is it with me? You know, was it, was it what I said? You know, so you, the, re- the rejection is very powerful. And so that is, some of them do know. Now, I don't think he knew that that's what was happening. He had no idea that was happening in the brain or anything like that. You know, so um, I think some of them know. But I think they know instinctively because they manipulate so much that they get to see how they have a reaction on somebody else. Because unlike the rest of us, we're very kind of focused on how we connect with people, how our behavior affects them. We're more concerned about, let's make sure we're good to them. 
But they, because they're so self-focused and so selfish, they are watching you, <laughs> watching what they say, how what they say impacts you and can control you. All that guy was interested in was controlling that situation so he didn't feel inferior to her instead of enjoying the fact that, wow, he got this beautiful, nice girl who was going to college and doing well to actually go out with him and enjoy that. That's what most of us would do. And instead, he thought, I have to control this. So, yeah. So, so yeah. And as you were, as you were saying that, I do recall a conversation with my ex where, you know, he was, he, he would actually isolate me from talking to other people and say it explicitly because he didn't want me to get in the way of what he was trying to say to them and what, what, how he was trying to lay out information or how he was trying to build relationships with them. He did. I mean, he didn't want me to, to mess it up. Um, and I, I mean, and so what, yeah, you just described the fact of like, yeah, no, actually, I think he was, you know, fully aware of yeah, you know, what was going on. Aware. Some are not aware, but some are aware of that they can use certain tactics. Right, right. And get the, again, you know, I guess for people that are listening to hear that, you know, your brain is being affected because you feel it in your skin and your heart and your chest and, you know, your body is responding and your body's only responding because the brain is sending signals to you. You know, that something is going on in there. Um, and so um, you've had this terrible experience and you decided not just to heal yourself, but you put on a cape and you became an advocate and a healer for others with the same experience, right? And so what what motivated you to do that? Because not everybody does that, yeah. takes that extra step. And this is my own experience, so I'm not saying anything about, I'm about to say something about psychology, but I'm not saying bad things about psychology because this is my field. So just know that's my sort of um, qualifier before I say what I'm about to say. <laughs> but I had a bad experience with a therapist. Um, so I, you know, went to this breakup and I, I knew I was in sort of crazy world. And I thought, okay, I don't feel good. I feel terrible. I need a therapist. So I, I found a psychologist and she worked with relationships and things. And so I went to her and I explained to her, look, I was just involved with somebody who has at the least narcissistic personality disorder and and she she sort of invalidated me every possible chance she seemed to get you know she she asked me did you know have you ever explored that maybe you're codependent and I thought well this is the first kind of relationship I've had like this and I've never interact I've never reacted like this to anybody before and this is the first time so wouldn't it have shown up in all my years at some point this pattern of codependency and she said well I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but I, maybe you're codependent. And then she also said that don't diagnose people because that's really not appropriate. And I go, yeah, but this is somebody I was involved with, and I am a psychologist, so I kind of know. But this, and out of all people, even my patients, I know this diagnosis for sure, even better than any patient. And so going through that, that bad experience and her wanting me to do what she wanted me to do, which was rehash all the scenarios regarding him. And, and I did that for a few weeks, but every week I needed like days just to get myself back together because I felt so terrible having to talk about what he did. I felt so it was a combination of being ashamed and then just reliving what he did was so hurtful. I was in more pain every time I went. And I thought, this just can't be it, that I have to talk about all these experiences, you know, and I was somebody who had PTSD. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have to discuss the violations the traumas, the, the things that hurt you the most with PTSD to heal from PTSD. It's not like um, you, you like purge it all out and then it's empty. Okay, now you're good. That's not how the brain works. It's more about deactivating certain pathways and activating other pathways. 
and there's no get it out kind of system we have in the brain. I mean, we do. I certainly don't know about it. But I was getting worse and worse and worse with her. And so I didn't go back to treatment after about a month or so. I'm, I'm not quite sure how long. And I, once I got better and started focusing more on the a neuroscience approach, I thought to myself, okay, Rhonda, treat yourself like you're your own patient. What would you do with her? And that was when I decided, all right, let's do this. And those things work for me. And so I decided that, you know, let me just let, at least let people have the foundation of what the narcissism spectrum individuals are like, because if I missed it, a lot of people are going to miss it. And so I decided to create Neuro Instincts for that very reason. But when I did create Neuro Instincts, I think I told you last time, I was so ashamed that it was that it happened to me. That one, I didn't tell anybody. And two, I never used my name. So if you were to go back to anything back in like, I think 2013, I created it. My name is nowhere. I, I Nowhere. Nothing. I just would sign it Neuro Instincts and write an article. Mm-hmm. And I was my picture was nowhere, nothing. It, because I was still, not that I was still healing from the relationship, I was still forgiving myself, you know, for what I allowed, I felt allowed to happen to me. Because mm-hmm. I would, I should have told this guy where to go, you know, is what I felt. And But yeah, once I forgave myself, my, my, my picture and face were everywhere. <laughs> they were everywhere. And I don't feel ashamed anymore. Yeah. Well, good. Good for you. <laughs> so, so talk, let's talk about what Neuro Instincts is because it's uh, you've got a website and an e- and an email list, and so I get both of those. Um, and you oh. have you have like treatment options and courses and stuff like that. So walk everybody through because what I want is somebody's going to resonate here and go, I'm still struggling with recovering, and therapy alone, you know, talk therapy alone isn't isn't really working, you know, for me, um, mm-hmm. whoever that person might be. And so I, I want them to be connected with what you're doing and, and see if that can help them. So. Um, what's it, what's it like? Sure. Uh, well, Neuro Instincts is kind of an educational hub and that's where I put a lot of articles that give people the background on the pathological narcissism spectrum. Um, it's really more for the person that's kind of newly out of this relationship or the person who, who may not be newly out, but newly realizing, wait, I was with this kind of partner. So for those who have been out for a while, they may not need so much background information on, on the narcissist or psychopath. So, the website has that. It talks about the brain patterns and what's going on with them. And then I also have a little bit of information regarding what could be going on in the brain of the survivor. Um, I have a bunch of videos on there. And yeah, there's an email list where I try to email as much as I can um, some new articles that I have. So yeah, it's kind of an educational hub. And then the second part of it is is a website called Neurosagacity, and that's where I have an online workshop type course. So it's not treatment or therapy because that obviously treatment and therapy is if you and I, for example, got one on one and had a contract and all that. Right. So it's none of that. But it's an educational hub where I go very, very, very deeply into what's going on in the brain for the survivor. So that course is solely focused on the survivor, and it's information I think that people should know. Um, if they're trying to heal. So it tells you maybe where your symptoms are coming from, what parts of the brain are being activated. And then I try to instruct or help people understand how they can cool those sections down. And for other sections, try to ramp it up. Like for example, some people have cognitive changes after these relationships. They find it harder to organize, harder to feel motivated, uh, harder to to sort of think as clearly and efficiently as they used to. So I talk about um, in the cognitive section, how to improve that. So there are two different sites. One is a course, and then one is uh, completely free and open and has tons of educational material. 
Awesome. And yeah, and like I said, you've got a lot of really wonderful articles on psychology today. Uh, like I like yeah. tagged like about you know three at least three of them. <laughs> yeah, I have um, some on psychology today. You know, one of the ones I, I really try to get people to read is one of psychology today I wrote about the brain kind of um, is called the brain works against abuse survivors. And I think that's an important article to understand why you might feel trapped and why you might feel that it's hard to break free when you logically understand the type of person you were dealing with. Um, Because our brain is actually built to keep bonds, even a bad bond. And that's coming from a section of the brain that's not, that's not the reasoning section It's the solely the emotional chemistry and the emotional section and it's not getting feedback from the prefrontal cortex to say, yeah, this is not a connection we want to keep. So let's just break that connection. It doesn't work that easily. So, yeah. yeah. And I've talked about that before on the, on, on the show here that, um, that our brain does guide us constantly to the familiar. And, and that's where, you know, to me, why kind of introducing the topic of you can't really just ignore your past. You can't just say that that had nothing to do with anything that you're doing oh, as an adult, never. right? It, I mean, it is actually the baseline of which everything you do today is based on. Right. Yeah. And so when you are, um, uh, when you are in a bad relationship, your brain's going, yeah, but I know this. I know this relationship. I'm going to navigate you through this. We're going to, we've already been through boot camp a few times, so we're good. And so I, you know, I'm glad that you break that down and and let everybody see that, you know, again, it reinforces this idea that we are going to continue um, to keep going towards those things until we become aware because what we, what we grew up with as children, how we process as children is different than what we are dealing with as an adult. And that's where that conflict comes in is that maybe bad experiences and bad people around us have set that baseline for us. But as an adult, that doesn't mean we have to keep hanging out with them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's better for your brain and your body. If you cut ties with people who are showing you they are continuously toxic towards you, because you're even if you feel like, oh, I can take this, I'm I'm pretty strong, I can take this, your body is going to have a reaction at some point. It'll show up later. It can show up in a pain disorder, headaches, um, some people cancer. It shows up. It will because we have a, a system of the brain called the HPA system, and it's it's a little bit different from our um, what we call LC. Um, NE system. Our LCNE system stands for locus aurelius norepinephrine system. That system gives you that instant feeling of fear. Like if someone, for example, I'm in this building by myself right now, if someone were to walk into this door, you would see my LCNE you know, freak out because I would be shooting with fear, so afraid. But you won't, I won't feel that for my HPA system. That system's quieter. It's the one that's going to release the cortisol. It's it's going to in, uh, interact with my entire body, and over time, it's going to have an impact. I'm going to end up with a belly. I'm going to end up with maybe some heart issues, all kinds of other physical issues, joint issues, pain issues that will present themselves maybe later on. Not maybe right now if you just got in that relationship, but let's say you're in it for a while, it'll show up somewhere. Yeah. So you know, think about it. If you think about being the value of being with someone who is toxic, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. And getting away from that, you know, I'm, we're coming up on, it'll be 10 months. It's been over 10 months since the last time I saw my ex and, oh, wow. um, and, and I, it's spoken to him, looked at him. We've been going through a divorce and just doing it completely through emails and through, and me not, not even being directly. And I had to do that. Like I had to detox, mm-hmm. um, completely because after a year of, 
kind of still remaining connected as the breakup continued. And that was one of the things that, you know, um, the, the narcissistic person loves intensity. So they want to keep fighting, right? Oh, and if they can yeah. keep you looped in and fighting with you, they will. And so it was like, you know what, just screw this. You know, I just, you know, we moved away, got away, and I just refused all contact. I mean, we live in a small town, and if I can navigate around him, if somebody tells me he's in an area, I just stay away. And it has been been life-changing you know I mean it's like my my skin my whole body is better like my whole mindset is better but it definitely was a, a complete detox from the situation and after detoxing out of it having clear thoughts you know um, being able to approach things also not so angry like you said anger like oh yeah I wanted to just yeah. screw oh, yeah. you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm just kind of like eh, you know it's like I got better things to do you know with the rest I of my love life. that state <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Also, I, I know we probably have to go soon. Um, no, but sorry. with respect sorry. to using that word detox, that word is perfect because on top of the whole trauma bond, we are going through many of us. I don't know, you know, everyone's state, but in general, we are going through withdrawal uh, of these people. So you have all these things going on, the trauma bond on top of it, feeling like you're craving this, a drug or something. So yeah. it's, it's a hard place to be, you know, and my, my, compassion goes out to everybody who is going through it. Cause I went through it. It is pretty tough. It's tough. It is. Yeah. And I, you know, again, I think that you and I talking about this and being very honest, and I appreciate your transparency and your honesty with sharing because the, you know, the biggest value of this is I'm sure as you've discovered with the people that reach out to you is being able to um, see another person having gone through what somebody else feels like they've done. And like I said, we're talking about abuse. We're talking about emotional abuse, which is yes. so much less obvious. And yet also leaves you feeling embarrassed and shameful and guilty and, you know, doubting yourself and then worried that everybody else is going to doubt you. Yeah. It's really, really important for people to see and witness another person and realize that they're not alone, you know, and for other people who can't identify, you know, I've ran into people that just like, I don't get that. Like, I don't understand how that happens to you. And it's like, well, thank yeah. God for that. Thank God that you weren't ever in it. Thank oh, God no, that yeah. you, your life didn't place you in the path of this. But now that you do know that this does happen and it happens to people that you think are really smart and should know better, um, air quotes again for the listeners, um, that you might have a much more compassionate view before you start to say that a victim deserves it. And that that it's just so easy and that they must be stupid for not leaving a relationship because it's not that easy well, like, exactly. at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's very complicated. Very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I, you know, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate you having the conversation with me um, again <laughs> for the second time. And, um, and I'm, you know, I, I want to say that I'm sorry you went through your experiences, but I, I, you know, if, if you feel like I feel like I feel like I'm at the end of the day, I'm going to take away something positive from that, yeah. which is that it changed me as a woman, changed me as a mother. And then it's allowing me to be able to help, you know, help other people. And so, um, I mean, hopefully that's, you know, that feeling. Yeah. That you do. Yeah. I'm sorry it happened to you as well, but I, yeah, I do like where it put us and yeah, that it allows us to help people. Yeah, totally. Cool. Well, Rhonda, it's been a pleasure this afternoon to have you back on again for the first time. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Thank you for listening to one broken mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiricone.com, and there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. 
Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Quirconi, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.